I have the absolute total delight to re-invite one of my absolute favorite people in the world of lucid dreaming and dream yoga, um, my dear friend, Charlie Morley. And he's such a resource. He's such a wealth of experience and knowledge that uh, this is one of these interviews that I look forward to because they're so easy for me. They're so gracious. We're like kindred spirits. And I always learn so much from this amazing individual. And I thought what I'd do something a little bit different today. Instead of me reading off the standard bio, I, I gave Charlie just a tiny bit of a heads up and uh, will allow him to introduce himself to you. Like, you know, what, what, Charlie, do you want us to know about you and your work? And then we'll jump right in. So far away, my friend, welcome. Okay, thank you so much for having me and thanks for such a lovely introduction. Before we went live, you said you were gonna ask me, who are you? And then in the last 60 seconds, I've been sitting here thinking, who am I? And I've <laughs> lost in some sort of emptiness of, of ultimate truth of I actually don't know who I am. Um, but I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the question you're asking is kind of a, a less philosophical one. So my name is Charlie and I help people um, heal and integrate both their minds and spirits, perhaps, um, through sleep and dream practices. So I guess I'm a lucid dreaming teacher, basically. Um, so I was authorized to teach in 2008 by my teacher, Lama Yeshe Rinpoche, who's the abbot of Samaling Monastery in Scotland, which, of course, famously co-founded with uh, Akon Rinpoche and Chogum Trumpa Rinpoche back in the late 60s. And for the first kind of 10 years of my career, I was mainly just teaching lucid dreaming and some shadow integration stuff and uh, a little bit of the dream yoga stuff too. And then the last few years, especially the last two years actually, since the, the lockdowns and pandemic started, I've been doing a lot, lot more work with veterans, um, armed forces veterans from both the UK and the USA. I've been running workshops with them before for the last kind of five or six years, but these last two years that became a real central focus. And although some of what I teach is lucid dreaming when working with veterans and traumatized populations, a lot of it is looking at how we can bring healing through the sleep state itself, learning how to sleep better and sleep deeply and sleep with an integrative awareness that sometimes leads to lucid dreaming. And at other times is simply about learning how to, um, to sleep well and to integrate trauma and stress. Uh, and that's what my new book's about. So that's really been a big focus for me for the last couple of years, not just lucid dreaming, but the deep relaxation practices of yoga nidra, a lot of breath work, but really into breath work because the quickest way to change your neurological state is through the breath from a scientific point of view anyway. So we got really, really into breath work for regulating dysregulated nervous systems. Um, and now it's a bit of a wider offering um, that I teach, not just the lucid dreaming, but also something called mindfulness of dream and sleep, which is like a holistic approach to integrating stress and trauma through sleep and dream practices, some of them within the Buddhist tradition. Anyway, that's a very long-winded reply. Sorry if it's too much. No, not at all. That's exactly what I was looking for because it's, it's going to let me know what's hot on your plate and what you're up to. And, and um, yeah, let's just dive right in. I, I, I read your book, Charlie. I really like it. I think it's a, a wonderful contribution. And retrofitting, in a certain sense, the foundations of the whole thing. You know, it's, a, it's like a nightclub. We started this series over a year ago with Dr. Ed O'Malley, uh, once a month gathering. Um, he's a sleep physician. Sleep yes. doctor. And, and we just get together and we talk about the unbelievable importance of, of basically, like you put, point out at the beginning of your book, one third of our lives, right? One third of our lives. 
that's a lot of time. So um, let's just jump right in. You know, I'm super excited about what you're doing with veterans. It's a little bit like what my dear friend Richard Miller does. I'm sure I know you've had some. Yes. Yeah. You know, he's trained with Richard. Well, I trained with iRest as part of the the work. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are both doing some amazing work with veterans and, and the military. And I have so much respect for that. And so I love this kind of union of heaven and earth. You know, you have this lofty vision of the Buddhist tradition and, and esoteric things like lucid dreaming, let alone uh, dream yoga. And now you're coming down to earth and, and you're bringing this vast vision and insight into, hey, how can we really work with this stuff? How can we massage it literally into the tissues of, of, uh, of form of matter and yeah. the world itself. And so let's talk a little bit more about this really marvelous book, um, especially the one I really want to riff on. I love what you have to say, the extensive write-ups, up, the write-ups that you have around breath. And so let's start with that. And, and just, you know, paying to my, uh, to our listeners, the important, the centrality of breath. I mean, as you know, Charlie, it's such a core topic that even the word spirit isn't spirituality comes comes from a root that derives from wind so this is like i mean how central is this really central so talk to us a little bit about what you've learned and then um, i'll ask you some specific questions about take homes um, what you've learned about breath work and it's important in this journey both physically and psychologically and spiritually brilliant so um uh, obviously if you're into dharma if you've um, and I kind of lived in a, in a Dharma center for almost eight years. And so anyone listening who's into Dharma will know that breath is obviously a part of a lot of the practices in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, especially when you get into the yogic tradition and the, um, the practice associated with the six yogis and the Ropa and such. Breath is a central, central part, whether it's from the well-known breath practice of the vase breath up to more complex ones. But what I found was when I went right to the root, okay, my, my kind of genesis in the breath work started when I got a, um, I got this funding from something called the Winston Churchill Foundation, which is an NGO based in the UK, uh, obviously funded by the uh, foundation that Winston Churchill left after he died, which supports people to study best practice in various modalities. And I got this thing to go to America and Canada and study best practice in mindfulness-based approaches to PTSD treatment in veterans. So I go out and I see Richard Miller, of course, in the brilliant IRS Institute. And um, I was mainly focusing on um, physical yoga practices. So there's something called the Veterans Yoga Project out of uh, Oakland, which is a brilliant work, the Yoga Nidra stuff, um, some kind of, you know, sleep and trauma stuff. But these names kept on coming up. These two people, they're a couple, uh, medical uh, doctors and a psychiatrist called Dr. Richard Brown and Dr. Patricia Gerbarg. Their names kept on popping up and they run this thing called Breath, Body, Mind. And I started to talk to them and I just had no idea the amount of absolutely medically validated um, scientific research there is into the power of breath. Mm. And how, as I said before, one of the quickest ways to change our neurological state is for our breath. And of course, that's not surprising. You know, if we see something shocking or if we almost get run over by a car, we go <gasps> like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, that, that, that breath affects our mind and our mind affects our breath. And of course, if we were to, if I was to ask all of our listeners now to spend the next five minutes doing this, <gasps> they'd eventually have a panic attack because the brain listens to the lungs. So if the lungs are um, displaying a breath rate, hmm. 
which signifies threat, eventually a kind of a threat response will come into play. And of course, the opposite. If we spend the next five minutes going, ah, really long exhalation with, of course, that holy dream yoga syllable, ah, then we enter a very relaxed state. So we know that the breath and the emotions are connected. But I had no idea that you could actually change the emotional state via the breath. I thought it was that the emotional state affected the breath, mm -hmm. but it works the other way too. So I started looking into the research here and realized that some of these breath work practices, especially slow, deep breathing. So moving our breath rate from about 15 breaths a minute down to five breaths a minute, which is in the resonant breathing range or sometimes called coherent breathing, which is mm -hmm. a very specific type of, of breath work, um, that you created such a calming in the nervous system that you actually synchronize the electrical rhythms of the heart, the brain, and the lungs can all be synchronized. You see this on a graph within three to four minutes of coherent breathing, which is breathing at an exact rhythm of five breaths a minute. And the first amazing thing I found was that there is for 90% of the world's population, there is an optimal breath rate, which is actually to be specific, it's 5.1 breaths a minute, but let's call it five breaths a minute. And I was like, you're kidding me. There can't be an optimal breath rate for every human being. Like we're all so different, different physiologies, different lung capacity, but it turns out it's true. Breathing at five breaths a minute for 90% of the world's population is the optimal breath rate. If you breathe at five breaths a minute, Everything they, can everything they can measure in the lab becomes optimized. Heart rate variability, neurological functioning, blood flow, uh, lung capacity, everything, uh, alpha waves, everything goes into this optimal state, which is already shocking. Um, now you might be thinking, what's the other 10%? The other 10% is the world, the 10% of the world's population who are over six foot tall. Mm. Uh, for them, then the breath rate might be might be more like 3.5 to four breaths a minute. It's apparently something to do with the extremity, the, the, the distance between your lungs and your extremities. Uh, sorry, your heart and your extremities. But for most people, five breaths a minute is this optimal breath range. So I started to, to, to kind of just try this out because I basically thought it was bullshit to be honest I was like no I lived in a Buddhist center I know all this special Tibetan stuff why has no one spoken about five breaths a minute before so I just started doing 20 minutes of coherent breathing which is breathing exactly five breaths a minute before my nundro practice uh, before uh, the guru yoga in yeah. nundro. and I found within about a week I not only started having loads of spontaneous lucid dreams and by that I mean I wasn't doing any practice to have them they were just happening uh, uh, not every night, but many nights of the week. And then just the quality of the guru yoga. I found that 20 minutes of coherent breathing brought me to as deep a meditative state as maybe over an hour of simple mindfulness of breath or shine or whatever practice I might've been doing. Um, it was, it really shocked me. And I was like, okay, this, this breath stuff is, is very, very interesting. Just to finish up on this point, for anyone listening who thinks um, five breaths a minute is incredibly slow, it's actually a very natural way of breathing. One of the most amazing bits of research I found that I put in the book was the average breath rates of Americans. Um, but I'm sure it could have been any kind of westernized countries. So right now, 2021, the average breath rate of Americans uh, is 15 to 20 breaths a minute. Oh, wow. uh, and we see that as totally normal. Now in 1939, sorry, 1929, at uh, Buffalo University, New York State, when they did the average breath rate of American in 1929, the breath rate was 4.9 breaths a minute. 4.9 breaths a minute. So our grandparents or whoever was around in, in, in 1929 breathed way, way slower than we do now. 
1939, it goes up to 5.3 breaths a minute. Um, after the, in the 50s, you get a little bit of a jump. And the theory is the sedentary lifestyles that the kind of mod cons that the 50s brought, and especially the introduction of television in the home, led to an increase in this breath rate. But still, as, uh, well, I was born in the 1980s, so it seems like just a, just a minute ago, but even in 1980, the average breath rate for an av for American uh, person was uh, 7.4 breaths a minute. So what has happened in the last 40 years to at least double, if not more than double, the average breath rate? I mean, we are breathing incredibly fast. And if you look at the increase in breath rate, it almost directly mirrors the increase in the four main killers, you know, heart disease, obesity, Alzheimer's, and whatever the, the fourth one is, I can't remember. Um, so there's very interesting stuff there. And then the final point on this that really shocked me was how does this, how does that research then affect us teaching mindfulness? Mm -hmm. Now, I've spent a lot of time telling people, okay, I want you to just watch your breath for the next 10 or 20 minutes, right? And in fact, all I'm asking them to do is to breathe at a suboptimal level, is to breathe so fast that they're activating the sympathetic nervous system because anything over 10 breaths a minute activates the fight or flight system. So this moves us to the shocking statement that the vast majority of us are constantly in a low level fight or flight activation state simply because of the way we breathe. And that actually when we teach mindfulness, if we're teaching people simply to watch their breath, all we're doing is getting them to sit there for 10 or 20 minutes, breathing suboptimally. Whereas back in the day, you know, if in the 90, if 1929, we were breathing at 4.9 breaths a minute, we can assume at the time that Buddha and these other great teachers were telling us to just watch the breath, we were probably breathing so slow that watching the breath was a very good instruction. But nowadays, when we ask people to simply watch the breath, is that the best instruction? I know now, since I came across that research, I teach breath work before mindfulness mm -hmm. in that order. Mm. because there's simply no point telling people to watch their breath if they're breathing so fast they're activating uh, so anyway just a couple of slices of, of um of the research i came across that made me realize everything is dependent on the breath everything comes back to the breath um yeah so i, I pardon the pun breathtaking really so interesting and, and just a couple of comments uh, charlie and then i want to ask you a couple of questions you know it's really interesting to me that uh as you know that uh the inner yogas, which comprise what maybe a third of all tantric practice, the inner yogas are basically wind yogas. They're all about mm. how to harness these winds, how to work with them. And, and in the Kalachakra Tantra, as you probably heard, very compelling. They say that of all the elements, wind is the most powerful. It's that which mm. cr creates and destroys individual and collective world systems. And uh, a couple of things that I found interesting also, some data that I've read is that depressed people, studies have shown that they have a very shallow respiratory function. In other words, oh. they literally don't breathe deeply. And so yeah. that's super interesting. And also in my own personal experience, and I'm sure you've had this also, that there's a, and we can explore this slightly more esoteric topic after we um, kind of run over some of the more basic practical stuff is that there's a very intimate connection between outer respiration and inner respiration. In other words, uh, uh, breathing as we know it in uh, prana, lung, chi, and, and therefore, yes. as you know, in meditation, right? You, when you first start out, your, your breathing is short and rapid and, 
and your mind is choppy and flighty and, and uh, kind of torrential. And then as you settle down and it works, again, it's a bi-directional thing, either use, using breath work or mind work, bottom up or top down, the velocity of your thoughts decreases, which are propelled by the inner winds, which are correlative to the outer winds. And guess what happens? Your, your physical breathing actually decreases. And you can enter, not that uncommon, these deep states of meditative absorption, the samadhi, the jhanan states, where literally outer respiration as we know it ceases. You've entered complete yes. meditative absorption. And, and, and this is no exaggeration. You are not breathing. You're sitting there and you're being kept alive by the inner winds, but physio physiologically, there's no respiration taking place. And the inner correlate to the mind is complete cessation of thought. There's no ripples on the ocean of the mind. So I find that super compelling. But what I want to ask you before we get into some of the more refined aspects here, mm -hmm. we've you've talked about frequency of breath. How about uh, depth of breath? <clears throat> How does that work? I mean, are there, in the breath work that you write about, or your own experience, how often do they talk about how deeply one should breathe? Yeah. So the, the studies on coherent breathing, um, because most of them are medical studies, they're just looking at length of breath. But these guys, Breath, Body, Mind, which is Richard uh, Brown and his wife, Patricia Gerbach, they are mainstream, like Harvard Medical School psychiatrists, right? But when I went to their home to interview them, as soon as I walked in, I was like, oh, these guys are full-on spiritual practitioners. And I actually said to my head, these guys are full-on hippies. I mean, there were tankers on the walls. There were Buddhas. <laughs> Turns out they've been into the yogic breathwork system for year, decades. Awesome. But they had never found that, or they hadn't yet, you know, combined it with their kind of mainstream psychiatry. So um, when I was training with Breath, Body, Mind, they do a lot more about uh, how this affects the chi and also about how important it is to breathe deep and not just long. So they bring in kind of belly breath, yeah. um, ujjayi breathing on the exhalation, you know, the kind of Darth Vader breath, sometimes it's called yeah. um, pursed lip breathing. So they're bringing a lot more of that and it really maximizes it. And in fact, not only that, the breath, body, mind teachings combine um, coherent breathing, which is the five breaths a minute rate, uh -huh. with essentially Qigong. Now, of course, they're not allowed to call it Qigong because they're presenting it in a medical framework. Right. So they call it, it's something like mindful movement with the breath. And I'm like, okay, these, <laughs> this is full on Qigong. But then when you do the training, they kind of let you in and go, okay, guys, th this is Qigong. And it turns out they're, they're full on Qigong practitioners. So they're really into this, exactly uh -huh. as you said, that by training the breath, you're training the inner winds. You're, you're moving prana, you're, you're learning to control the lung um, and how important that was. In fact, they, they shared a study, um, I think it was Padova University in, in uh, Italy. They were studying a Zen Buddhist temple. I don't know where it was, whether it was in Japan or not, but a Zen Buddhist temple. And they found a direct correlation between the number of years uh, the different monks have been meditating and the um, frequency of their breath. So basically the ones who'd be meditating only kind of 10 years were breathing, I don't know, whatever, six or seven breaths a, a minute. Those who'd been meditating 40 years were down to two or three breaths yeah. a minute. Direct correlation wow. between meditative experience and exactly as you said, this kind of almost cessation of breath. Um, so it seems to tie in absolutely. And of course, that's what I'm interested in. Can we find medical studies to back up spiritual truths? Because if we can, then we are able to present this to a much wider audience. Exactly. And if we've really taken this bodhisattva vow, if we're really into helping as many beings as we possibly can, then I think it's important to straddle both worlds because there's, you know, you're, you're ticking all bases there. 
you can say, look, for those of you spiritually minded, this is about chi and about lung and about prana. For those of you who are not, here's the medical research that shows that breathing at a much slower rate is just good for all of your internal systems anyway. And I think that really allows it to be brought to a, to a much wider audience. Um, and that's it, right? This is what we're here to do, to help as many people as we possibly can. And the lucid dreaming is brilliant for helping people. Um, and it's a powerful spiritual practice, but not everyone right. is either up for lucid dreaming or ready for lucid dreaming. But breathing, everyone does that. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a really direct way and, and a really good kind of uh, gateway practice into, uh, into the deeper spiritual truths. And you know what's so cool here, um, Charlie, is that we take, we take both these things, sleep and breath, for most people, they're just like axiomatic. They're, I mean, they're just givens, right? You know, well, working with my sleep. Well, what do you mean working with my sleep? Well, you've got this whole array of practices to do with that. Breath. Well, what do you mean work with breath? Don't I just breathe properly automatically? Yes. Uh, no, not really. And so exactly. it's, it's, it's really kind of fantastic because in a certain way you were bringing, you can almost say these autonomic processes, these unconscious processes yes. into the light of consciousness. And, and now we're starting exactly. to take more control of these infrastructure, physiological, not just psychological and spiritual, because they're all breath, body, mind. They're all so inextricably connected. You can't really do one without the other, right? And so I love what you're doing here. You know, you're taking, you're retrofitting these earth qualities into these heavenly adventures as a way to inform and, and transform both. And so let's Andrew, get, let's get I'm specific. so glad you made that connection there. Sorry, just before we move on. So oh, glad please, you made that please. Because both sleep and breath are automatic things. They will happen naturally. You know, you, you will sleep automatically if you stay awake enough. It's a kind of a biological function and you will breathe at some point. If, or if you don't breathe enough, if you don't forget to breathe, then you die, right? So these are absolutely automatic and autonomic processes. But in the same way as we need to relearn how to sleep and optimize our sleep, exactly the same with breath. Yeah, And uh, so I absolutely agree. The practices are so parallel. And I realize I haven't actually made the connection yet. Um, that coherent breathing or slowing your breath right down has a powerful, powerful impact upon our ability to sleep. And I find that a lot of the approaches to sleep are these kind of sleep hygiene hacks. Yeah, exactly. It's like affect the external environment of your bedroom to create conditions, which makes it easier to fall asleep. And for some people that can work really well. If you've got a like normal level of stress, then some sleep hygiene stuff can, can be really good. You know, don't look at your phone before bed and take a hot bath and all that kind of stuff. But if you're working with a level of stress in which uh, a level of stress that has dysregulated your nervous system, then you need a stronger medicine. And actually by regulating the nervous system through the breath, whether it's in the middle of the day or just before bed, even better, sleep will happen naturally. Yeah. So this approach of using breath and deep relaxation for sleep is kind of about preparing the internal conditions that will allow mm -hmm. sleep to happen naturally. Beautiful. So if you can breathe for 20 minutes, uh, well, 10 to 20 minutes coherently, so at the, the four to six breaths a minute range, the effects on the nervous system last for two to three hours afterwards. So if you mm -hmm. can do that before bed, you won't have to do these kind of external changes to your bedroom because sleep will happen naturally because of course sleep is a natural biological process that will occur in the absence of stresses that prevent it from occurring. So this approach is about remove the internal stresses and then not only do you sleep better, but you start to live better as well. I found a lot of people who've said, not a lot of people, but some people have said actually the coherent breathing 
not only affected my sleep, but it just affected my daytime awareness because I was breathing that way more naturally. And slower, deeper breaths mean, just as you said, it means the mind becomes less muddled. It optimizes our, our, um, our ability to think and to make decisions. There are so many, you know, there are so many um, side effects here. You know, if you teach breath for people to sleep better, it not only helps them sleep better, but also helps in all areas of life too. So I'm really glad you, you, you found that and, and made, highlighted that connection there. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? It's, it's, I think it's extraordinarily powerful. And, and there's, you know, I mean, there, again, so many things to say here. One thing, Charlie, that comes to mind that I started presenting when I was reading through some old um, transcripts, teachings of my um, main teacher, Kempel Sultram Gyamsa Rinpoche, and his Mahamudra teachings, he actually teaches a, a one breath meditation session, which is like bloody fantastic, right? So like in the middle, and this is like, this, this is from, from, from a Mahamudra master, uh, he's saying throughout the day and in in this um, notion yeah. of short sessions repeated frequently, right? I do this like all the time. Like whenever I feel a sense of contraction, anxiety, yeah. I have sensitized myself now. Like, you know, we're, we're so sensitized when someone sneezes to say, you know, bless you or gesundheit. Well, I've worked enough where I've sensitized myself that whenever I feel reactivity building or some sort of level of contraction, I default, instead of reacting, I default into a one breath meditation session. Oh, dude. There. And literally, and then I'll, I'll, it's like taking a sip of space. I will ventilate yes. the contraction, breathe, and all of a sudden, what do I do? Breath, body, mind, coherence through one breath, right? Dude, that is so good. And I cannot wait till I get to the stage where I can do that. <laughs> it's totally, yeah. yeah it's, it's just so not there, but it's so nice to know that someone with a lot more experience than me on the Dharma path can get to that stage. So I rejoice in that. That's brilliant. Yeah. And it's actually not that difficult, Charlie. It's, again, it really is like the conditioning that comes about when we've been trained to say, bless you when someone sneezes. And so yeah. I, I often, you know, it, it, what's the maximum, you know, you work work with these practices and you do them and they start to do you, right? This is the yeah. of good karma, good habit. But I love the direction you were taking this. So I want to get back to that. Let's be real specific about a couple things that we can leave our listeners with. Yeah. One is just to, to reinstate this and then refine it, because this is exactly where I wanted to go with this, is, is tell us a little bit like, okay, you mentioned a 20 minute session of, of coherent breathing. So give us a little bit of the mechanics about that. And then where I want to take that is exactly where you were going with good sleep hygiene, um, how to work with this just before we go to bed. So talk to us a little bit about the specificities, you know, like how you engage in this in, in, yeah. your, in daytime practice. Okay. Actually, before we get to coherent breathing, let sure. me share the kind of three tips that I found based on the research for the book that people can start straight away. These okay. three ways to optimize your breath in everyday life. Cool. So number one is to shut your mouth, breathe <laughs> through your nose as much as possible. Yeah. Mouth breathing is, has a whole host of kind of negative side effects. So breathing through your, breathing through your nose has a three layer filtration system. You've got the hairs in your nose, then you've got this mucous membrane, then you've got these things called cilia, which are these yep. tiny microscopic hairs that move the mucous membrane along and breathing through your nose um, any debris or pollutants in the atmosphere get caught in that three-way filtration system. Also, breathing through your nose kind of is like an air conditioner. So it either heats mm. up the air or cools the air, depending on what needs to be done. 
so that by the time it enters the nasal cavity, which by the way, your nasal cavity is bigger than your mouth, which is weird. Um, it actually allows for more of the oxygen to be taken in. So although it seems like breathing through your mouth takes in more air, you know, if you're kind of, even if you're running, breathing through your nose is better, which is crazy. You know, I was really into kickboxing, as you know, and I, I knew that between rounds, I would want to breathe through my mouth because I, would, I, I was hungry for more air. Now, although breathing through your mouth brings in more air, it doesn't bring in more oxygen. Because of the way the nasal cavity is designed, and because of the fact that breathing through your nose releases something called nitric oxide, not nitrous oxide, that's, this, right. that's laughing gas, that's what you right. take outside a rave, uh, but the other thing, nitric oxide. And nitric oxide actually expands the blood capillaries. So it not only allows you to take up to 20% more oxygen, but it allows more oxygen to be um, kind of uh, transmitted into the bloodstream. So breathing through your nose has a whole host of benefits. Breathing through your mouth has a whole host of negatives. Um, it doesn't have that freeway filtration system. Breathing through your mouth doesn't bring in as much oxygen as breathing through your nose. Um, it's also really bad for your teeth. Exactly. Uh, breathing through your mouth, um, actually uh, mouth breathing while you sleep has been said to be one of the leading causes of teeth decay, only secondary to um, you know, sugary snacks and stuff like that, the effect of sugar acids on, on the teeth. Um, oh, also breathing through your mouth seems to make you less smart. They did this test on mice in Japan. I mean, who, who does these tests, right? But in Japan, they found a way to, to block the nostrils of mice and they watched their development and actually neurological development. So the amount of neurons they developed in their brain was much lower uh, when they forced the mice to, uh, to breathe through their mouth. So first tip, close your mouth. Um, how to do this in the daytime, anytime you feel that you're breathing through your mouth, apart from when you're speaking, of course, just shut your mouth. Um, and then try some conscious breath work through the nose. Um, exhaling through the mouth is okay. Of course, I'm talking about inhale through the mouth here. Um, and a third thing, which may seem quite extreme, but is loads of science on this. So Google it. If, if you feel your bullshit sensors going off here, mouth taping. Mm. So mouth taping at night, um, this is not kind of putting a big piece of duct tape over your mouth, right? This isn't some like BSDM thing. This is about getting a tiny piece of surgical tape and putting it like a central uh, piece of it down, down the midline of your lips. So it's, you're not hermetically sealing the mouth shut. You're just encouraging mouth, you're, you're encouraging nasal breathing when you sleep because it's more hard to breathe through your mouth. It's very easy to, to remove it. Um, but if you do that at night, your sleep, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm, obviously very into finding out the optimum amount of sleep that I need. And for me, the optimum sleep time for me is nine hours, right? Mm -hmm. If I can get nine hours a night, the next day, I do not need coffee. I don't need naps. I'm 110% energized. Mm -hmm. When I mouth tape, I find I'll wake up naturally after eight and a half hours, oh, wow. which for me is a real sign that is optimizing the quality of sleep. Oh. Uh, and I found the dreams change too because you're in this perfectly optimized um, uh, oxygenated brain state. Whereas when you breathe through your mouth, you're not getting as much oxygen in. It's really bad for your teeth. It's affecting your neurology in a bad way. So uh, yeah, breathing through your nose would be the first tip I'd say. Um, the second tip is expand your lungs. There is a direct link between lung capacity and length of life, yep. like direct link. Yep. So the greater your lung capacity, the longer you live. So do whatever you can to increase your lung capacity. Um, how to increase your lung capacity. You can increase your lung capacity by up to 600% through slow, deep breathing, like coherent breathing or whatever resonant breathing of your choice. So resonant breathing is any breath rate between three and six breaths a minute. Mm -hmm. Coherent breathing is specifically 
five breaths a minute. Um, so yeah, keep your mouth shut, expand your lung capacity, how to expand your lung capacity, lots of different breath work techniques, but one of the best ones is slow, deep breathing. And that leads on to coherent breathing. So the easiest way to practice coherent breathing, um, you could count it. So five breaths a minute equals out at six seconds inhale and a mm -hmm. six second exhale. Mm -hmm. So you could count, but when we count, we activate the left brain hemisphere which reduces our ability to enter deep relaxation. So far better, and this is the way, you know, 90% of people practice coherent breathing is with a, a track, an audio track. You can find these online. You can find them on YouTube, just putting coherent breathing, five breaths a minute. They're these chime tracks. They go like, bing, 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 but much more melodious than, than my voice. And you just stick in the earphones or you put them over your speakers and you just follow the breath track breathing into the length of one chime and breathing out to the length of the other. And that's it. You can be reading a book. You can be watching the television. You can be cooking. You can be walking. You know, it doesn't require, um, this is why it's so good for veterans actually compared to mindfulness, because it doesn't require um, a kind of a self-regulation. All it requires is that you follow the chime. You're not kind of leaving people just with their thoughts in silence for 20 minutes there's like this background of the chimes and you're just following the chimes up and down. You can do it when you're reading a book and you really feel it. Um, this is another cool thing about coherent breathing. After a few minutes, you just feel it. You're like, Oh, wow. There is a, a, a noticeable and viscerally engaged relaxation response after about seven minutes of coherent breathing. So if you can hit about 10 minutes and then move it up to 20 minutes um, anytime during the day, but especially before bed, um, you'll probably find a, a very strong impact on your sleep that night. And so Charlie, do you recommend people do this like formally in sitting meditation or sitting up in their bed before they lie down? Or can you actually do this as you're lying down as part of your um, sleep onset approach? Yeah, either. So if you're going to do it lying down, then you may find that it kind of merges into a yoga nidra kind of hypnagogic mindfulness session anyway, which is totally fine. And you can use it to fall asleep with. Um, you know, if you can fall asleep with a coherent breath, that is a brilliant way to fall asleep. As we know, the kind of Buddhist thing about the, uh, the archer pulling back the bow and the release of the, the arrow being that last thought as you go into sleep, affecting yeah. the whole sleep that comes. The breath too, the last breath that you have, which is why, of course, in the Dzogchen tradition, the ideal would be to fall asleep with the ah and to wake up. The first noise we make in the morning would be the ah, but more like the lion's roar ah. So again, we know the first and last breaths as we fall asleep and as we wake are so important. So yeah, if you fall asleep with coherent breathing, even better. Um, so it can be done. I do it formally uh, because I really want to test this in myself. Yeah. Yeah. See like informal meditation practice, do 20 minutes, then switch off the chimes and just sit. And what I found is that 20 minutes of coherent breathing brings me, like I said, to a deeper meditative state nice. than over an hour of just sitting doing shine. That's fantastic. And so just to make sure, I, I, I'm not sure I track the numbers. So number one is shutting your mouth. Number two is expanding your lungs. Did I miss number, and number three? number three is slow, deep breathing. Ah, there we go. Slow, deep yeah, breathing. Yeah, which leads okay. us into the coherent breathing. I mean, there are other forms of slow, deep breathing you can do, but coherent breathing is the one with the most science. And it's one of the easiest ones to do and to teach as well. You know, and as, as you know, um, the HeartMath Institute has also done exactly the same kind of data. So when they talk about heart-brain cohesion, uh, coherence, 
they're talking about the same respiratory rate that- Oh, the, the heart math stuff, anyone who's into that, that completely backs up all the coherent breathing stuff. And in fact, there's a lot of overlap. If you look at the the uh, people who are kind of really pioneering the heart, uh, uh, heart math stuff and the breath, body, mind guys and Stephen Elliott who developed coherent breathing, they're very close. You know, these people all know of each other's work and are very supportive of it. Yeah, it all feeds into each other. And so let's let's take this one final step. Um, so let's say, okay, um, you wake up in the middle of the night and you have this thing called insomnia, right? The number one sleep disorder out of a, over 108 sleep disorders, number one. How can one engage in um, kind of, you know, it's interesting, <clears throat> parenthetically, I, I often play with this notion of when we when we come home at the end of the day, we unwind, right? Um, what when we unwind? What are we doing? We're unwinding, right? Unwind, yes, unwind. unwinding, brilliant. And so, to me, Charlie, you know, just briefly here, what I uh, to me the the necktie, which is now um, unfortunately expanding across the globe, is a very interesting cultural symbol huh. of how we trap off the winds in the head centers and the chakras, right? Oh, so you you absolutely. choke yourself off you're hanging yourself, right? You're constipating the winds in the head chakra. The result are chronic headaches, runny eyes, tinnitus, all the head disorders, all the weird things that are associated with this. And it's to me, an interesting kind of cultural symbolic representation. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. And the way it's, it, and again, what uh, the, the marker of like business success around the world is dropping indige- indigenous wear and, and, and adapting the necktie for F's sake, right? Like don't do that. <laughs> so we take off the neckties to unwind, to unwind. And if we didn't do that, the winds would never drop. What's the result of that kite always staying up? Well, of course, insomnia, yeah. either sleep onset or you know, latent insomnia. So talk to us a little bit about you wake up in the middle of the night, and again, very interesting. I love that you brought in the the notion, the, the kind of the archaeology of consciousness with uh, polyphasic sleep um, stages instead of sleeping in this contr- somewhat contrived, largely because of artificial yeah. night, you know, consolidated block. In, in in previous times, we slept in in the two sleeps of the night, in that yes. wonderful magical period, the hour of God, all the wonderful. Um, opportunities for hanging out on that liminal space. But before we traffic into that, okay, I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm suffering from insomnia. How can I uh, breathe then? What should I do then to help unwind? Yeah. So first thing would be if you're awake in the middle of the night, first thing to know is that's okay. So not to panic and to know that nighttime wakefulness is totally okay. And as you, as you mentioned there until very recently, until couple of hundred years ago, nighttime wakefulness was what everybody did. We slept in these two bouts, right? We slept for a few hours, then we woke up, we were wide awake for two hours in the middle of the night, then we fell back to sleep. And in fact, in the 1900s, in the New York Times, in the 1900s edition of the New York Times, they have an article about the newfangled malaise named insomnia. So insomnia as a cultural um, meme only comes into play in, in the 1900s, which is about um, 20 to 30 years after you stop getting any reference to this first and second sleep, which is, of course, how pre-industrial yeah. people slept and how still uh, cultures who have been untouched by Western industrialization still sleep that way. There are over 500 cross-cultural references to the two sleep pattern. So yeah. we can assume that it was an almost universal norm. So first thing, if you wake in the middle of the night, that's okay. 
It may be that you're displaying a very anthropologically natural way of sleeping. Um, the most common form of insomnia in the UK and the US is sleep maintenance insomnia, yep. which basically describes how we used to sleep. People can fall asleep when they first fall asleep at night for a few hours. Then they wake up, feel bright as a button for two hours in the middle of the night, and then can fall asleep again if they allow themselves the space to know that there's a second sleep waiting for them in the wings, then they often can fall asleep again. So I think there are millions of misdiagnosed insomniacs in the Western world who are actually simply displaying a much more natural sleep pattern than perhaps this myth of the eight hour sleep cycle. So first thing I'd say is that, know that it's totally okay to be awake in the middle of the night. And if you wanna be awake, stay awake, that's totally fine. But let's say you're awake in the middle of the night, you wanna get back to sleep, what can you do? You could use coherent breathing. That could be a brilliant thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, finding the chime track on your phone, playing audio, all this stuff may be, you know, too much for you in the middle of the night. So a really good one for that would be something called the 478 breath. Uh, I just going to ask you about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Run with it. Run with it. Good one. So 478 is great. Um, so it's breathing in for a count of four, uh, holding the breath for a count of seven and breathing out for a count of eight. So let's look at the top and tail of it, first of all. We know that every time you breathe in, you mildly stimulate the fight or flight system. And every time you breathe out, you mildly stimulate the parasympathetic exactly. rest and digest system. Exactly. So by doubling the length of the exhale, you yeah. are doubling parasympathetic emphasis. So you're putting more of the emphasis on rest and digest, right? So something like the four, eight breath is brilliant. Just breathing in for a can of four, breathing out for a can of eight. That could be one too. But the breath hold is quite important. Um, now, the breath hold shouldn't be done by people who are pregnant or who have long COVID. This is a new one. Uh, the the uh, uh, Patricia Gerbach, who's the medical doctor who uh, won half of Breath, Body, Mind, she told me that. She had a long COVID, breath holds aren't good, apparently. Uh, but if you're not pregnant or have long COVID, then the breath hold of seven counts um, mildly raises CO2 levels in the bloodstream, which may seem like a bad thing, but actually by mildly raising them, it kind of dilates blood vessels so that when you breathe out on the eight of the four, seven, eight breath, breathing out on the exhale, you actually get a deeper relaxation response. So the breath hold is, is possibly the, the uh, even more important than the longer exhale. Hmm. And four, seven, eight is just like that. So breathing, I mean, I'll, I'll do it now so people could do it along. Uh, breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth. So breathing in, two, three, four, hold the breath, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Breathing out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One more, breathing in, two, three, four. Hold the breath, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Breathing out, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So that would be the four, seven, eight breath. And you could do a few rounds of that, maybe five or six rounds. Um, you can't overdose on it. There are no contraindications apart from those who are pregnant or with long COVID. Um, and that's a really good one to do in the middle of the night. I mean, that's like a, that's like a natural tranquilizer for the system. Um, I've, when I've shared that with veterans, out of all the breathing things I've shared, a lot of them have found the four, seven, eight has been the real one for them. Wow. That is fantastic. You know, just so parenthetically, um, uh, not to complicate things, but um, Dr. Nida Chinatang, you know, you oh, yeah. know his work. He's brilliant. He, he actually he actually has, um, and I do this, and it'd be interesting. I'm curious whether we could 
um, without getting complicated, conjoin his mantra, because he has an insomnia mantra, Li Ah Hum, where it would be interesting to play with whether it would um, change your relationship to so-called insomnia by uh, uh, conjoining it with that um, threefold um, Vajra recitation, in other words, a mental recitation of that sound. But um, I, I love it, Charlie. It's fantastic. And I think one. I just, just lost your audio for a minute there, Andrew, but I think you were saying it would be interesting to see if you could add those two things together, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. I mean, again, kind of a, a lived experiment. I, I do so much of this with my dream and my sleep. You know, I take these fundamental parameters and then I play with them. I just see, hey, gee, I wonder what happens if I do this with this. And so it'd be, to me, it would be interesting experiment to see what that's very cool andrew yeah i've already been trying the um you know i said coherent breathing is six seconds in six seconds out yeah so i've been trying the six syllables of om mani pema hung um Perfect. rather than having to count the seconds i think well i'll count each syllable to a beat of a second right. and of course once you combine the mantra with the breath work it brings a whole other level so i'd exactly. love to, to see that yeah 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 kind of a, a twofer you know you're two for one there you get work <laughs> exactly I love it. And so also, I think what I would throw out to listeners, just to reinstate this, there's both a, 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 a promise and a peril in, in, in diagnosis. So even when someone says, oh, I'm suffering from insomnia, just the fact that you say that can be a, a blessing and a curse on one level. Yeah, yeah. it's helpful to identify this as a potential sleep disorder. But like you're saying with this, with this polyphasic sleep relationship, don't diagnose it that way. Just realize yeah. that this, this is just part of your particular makeup because if you if you make that diagnosis that in itself can say oh i am afflicted now with this sleep disorder and it has a, a kind of a negative feedback loop where you know don't label that that's one of the absolutely your enemies of, of articulation that don't label it insomnia it's just like hey mm -hmm. i'm awake at night instead of for me charlie instead of the usual oh shit right it's like oh wow i'm awake yes Instead okay, of like, this is interesting. What's yeah, happening? Exactly. Instead of wrestling with my mind and, oh my God, tomorrow's totally trashed. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm screwed. Yeah. No, instead of, oh crap, it's like, oh wow, look at what my mind can do. Isn't this yeah. amazing? And so yeah. that also flips the context in the relationship from an adversarial one to one that's based on metta, my tree, kindness towards one. Yes. And even curiosity yeah. and playfulness. It's like, oh wow look at this. I'm going to, how interesting that my mind is doing this. And the other thing I'll, I'll toss in and then, and then I'll move on to another issue here is sometimes when, uh, when my mind is particularly windy, I will actually say, this just happens spontaneously to me. I will actually say as a mantra, love my mind. I love Ooh, my mind. Nice. I love my mind because then it's like, wow, I'm really going to hold I mean, children, uh, thoughts are the children of my mind, right? And so maybe they're throwing a little tantrum. And so I'm going to hold them in Shamala language in the, in the cradle of loving kindness. And almost like an um, affirmation mantra, I'll say, literally, I love my mind. I love my mind. And therefore, no matter what it's doing, I'm holding the, the, the little tantrum or whatever that windstorm is in this larger embrace of, of metta maitri. And it, to me, it really helps flip the tables and relate to it in a more playful, even curious way, you know, hey, wow, this is really kind of interesting. Let's just check this out, right? Dude, it so. is so nice to do a podcast with someone who's a practitioner. It's like, I, I love doing this with you because it's not like, 
it's not a normal podcast where someone's asking me questions. It's like someone asks you with you, you ask a question, I give a reply, and then you riff into this, <laughs> into this kind of practice insight that you just don't get from oh, nice. anyone else. Yeah. Who well, I've done, who I've done <clears throat> I just, I, I just love this, man. Yes. I agree. Uh, totally with what you just said. I appreciate it. And also because I, I'm so inspired when I chat with you that, you know, you have so much to offer. I get inspired to just engage in this rich dialogue. So it's really rare, on man. Got something really rare happening here. This it's is so with you. Yeah. I mean, so beautiful. Thank you. I, I feel exactly the same way. And so one last thing here, Charlie, because this, again, this is so important for people. It's like, wow, I never thought I could look at breathing in this way. I thought this was just like, you know, this automatic thing. Well, let's take a look at it in more subtle way. So one final thing here, perhaps final, <clears throat> excuse me, the role of, of two things. One, <clears throat> the role of pranayama and yeah. also the role of expelling the stale air practices. So now we're transitioning yeah. a little bit more esoteric inner yoga stuff. And, and as you know, in, in the tantric practices, there are so many really powerful, um, like ninefold ex, uh, exhalation, yeah. sometimes conjoined with visualizations associated with exhaling the winds of the three poisons sometimes alternating back and forth in classic Hindu pranayama with the nostril closures and that sort of thing. So talk to us about both your understanding and your personal experience and implementation of, of expelling the stale air practices and pranayama. Perfect. Just before I get to that, just a couple of things I want to um, uh, just highlight in something you said before. Okay. Um, when you talked about, oh, the, the label of insomnia, there's a very interesting phenomena called subjective insomnia, ah. which is basically people thinking they're not asleep at night, right? Uh, but actually they are. And you get them into a sleep lab where they've got kind of video, kind of a CCTV, you know, video thing up in, up in the corner of the room. And they wake up in the morning and say, you see, I didn't sleep the whole night through. And then you show them back the video and you're like, look, you were asleep. I mean, not the whole night, but you were asleep for a lot of the night. And what it was, was they were basically having a false awakening. They were dreaming that they were awake in the sleep lab. And they said, no, oh, you came in and you checked on me and I told you I wasn't sleeping. And the, the laboratory technician said, no, no, we didn't come in. You, you dreamt that. Yeah. Now, of course, we know the easiest way to give someone a false awakening is to apply, is to change their sleeping conditions, but also to apply a sense of anxiety or pressure to what they're doing, which is why so many people have false awakenings when they, they're practicing lucid dreaming, right? So, I mean, that's super interesting that the anxiety around sleep is so great that they're essentially having kind of nightmares about not being able to sleep, but it's a false awakening. And this is why keeping a dream diary is such a good tool for insomnia. Sorry, I've, I've got a puppy here making noise. So please uh, well, no, know that's a puppy. It's adorable. Love it. Uh, and, and not me making these, these strange noises. Um, so I think that's a really interesting uh, route into keeping a dream diary because if people are writing down their dreams, they have solid proof that they have been asleep because they know that dream happens after deep sleep periods and most readily in the second half of the night once you've got that deep sleep under your belt. So I think that movement into kind of uh, recalling the dreams is a really good insomnia tool there. And the other thing I wanted to mention was um, that classic thing we feel tomorrow's ruined. Yeah. You know, I had no sleep tonight. Tomorrow's a write-off, I think, is the words you used. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting, uh, one of the most interesting studies I found in researching for the book at the University of California. 
they gave people eight hours sleep and then they gave them these mental acuity tests. So basically how, how your brains work and how quick your brain is, right? Then they give them four hours sleep the next night and they give them the same test. Of course, they do terribly on the test. They've only had four hours sleep compared to eight. Later on that day, they give them a one hour nap. Mm. So they've only had four hours sleep at night. But you give them a one hour nap sometime after lunch in the afternoon, right? Then they do the mental acuity test and they hit the same scores as after eight hours sleep. Now that is so good because it shows that if you are feeling, oh, tomorrow is a write-off, tomorrow is completely ruined. If you can find time for a sneaky one hour nap the next day, then actually your mental acuity levels will be the same as if you'd had eight hours sleep. Um, so I think that's a really important bit to tell people. Um, and it really helps uh, to relax in the middle of the night when you think, okay, so I'm not getting enough sleep now, but maybe if I can hour nap tomorrow, actually tomorrow is not a write-off. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So back to your question. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> coherent breathing, four, seven, eight breath, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. That is pranayama. I mean, I see yeah. no yeah. difference at all. That is yeah. breath control. That is guiding the breath. That is, it's just okay. without an awareness of, of the prana bit. It's just calling it, you know, a voluntary breathing practices is actually the medical term for all those aforementioned breathing techniques. Um, voluntary breathing practices, I believe there is no difference apart from the motivation and the cultural context between voluntary breathing practices and pranayama. Yeah. So I believe all this stuff, coherent breathing, four, seven, eight, it is all pranayama. Um, as far as the um, like spelling the, the uh, sail winds and stuff like that, yeah. I do teach one of the practices uh, on the courses with the veterans who is alternate nostril breathing, mm -hmm. which is a course coming much closer um, to those kind of pranayama practices and blocking one nostril and breathing out for a certain amount of time and stuff. In my personal practice, um, I do before any practice, I do the kind of expelling of the stale air through the each of the nostrils, then both nostrils together. Um, and I think that's really, really helpful. And there's quite a lot of science actually on alternate nostril breathing being a really powerful way of calming the mind. So um, they did research on stage fright and they found that one of the most powerful ways to reduce stage fright and people who are about to go on stage but have a phobia of going on stage was uh, not coherent breathing, not 478, none of that was specifically alternate nostril breathing. Whoa. So four, four, and eight. So breathing in like the left nostril for a count of four, holding the breath for a count of four and exhaling through the right nostril for a count of eight and then switching and doing that. Um, so again, this wonderful crossover between the power of pranayama and science now catching up and being able to kind of prove how this is working. So alternate nostril breathing, like if someone was, if someone suffers from panic attacks, I'd advise them to try coherent breathing as a way to, um, regulate the nervous system to prevent panic attacks happening. If someone was in the midst of a panic attack, alternate nostril breathing is one of the best things you can ask someone to do. It has a direct calming effect on the neurological system. And also I think because alternate nostril breathing like four, four and eight takes so much concentration that it moves the mind out of whatever it is panicking about and into this kind of internally guided state of uh, moving the breath through, of course, each of the channels. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, there's loads of crossover. Um, I think the breathwork techniques, especially like, I mean, we know the direct links between pop, you know, vase breathing and lucid dreaming. I mean, 21 vase breaths after a wake up, if you're doing wake back to bed or something like that is such a powerful way to induce lucidity. Um, because of course, bringing the energy into the central channel is the Tibetan definition of a lucid dream. 
you know, yeah, the, the, the scientific definition is reactivation of the prefrontal cortex and the frontopolar, frontopolar regions yep. from a neurological point of view. From the Tibetan point of view, it's bringing energy into the central channel. So it makes complete sense that any of these breathwork techniques that you do that bring energy into the central channel, either through, either through each nostrils or through simply coherent breathing, which slows the breath down and brings in all that residual energy that's out there in fight or flight into the parasympathetic system. There's, it just makes total sense from both scientific and spiritual perspectives that this would lead to an increase in lucid dreaming and the sleep and dream yogas. Isn't it awesome? I mean, just this wonderful um, conjunction confluence of, of the best of the East um, meeting the best of the West at yeah. the level of breath. And, and two, two quick points here. One is, again, we're, we're starting to talk about a more esoteric, subtle approach, which is fantastic. That, as you know all too well, that the, the, the energies that flow through these two side channels, you know, the sun poison prana through the right channel, more masculine, outgoing, wakeful, extroverted energy, the moon nectar prana through the left channel, more feminine, introverted. And in a very real way, what we're doing when you're doing pranayama or um, this type of breath work is the other thing is you're synchronizing masculine and feminine energies. You're, yes. you're bringing a quality of balance, you know, which is terrific because on one level, too much male energy, too patriarchal, too much outgoing <laughs> stuff, right? And so really, isn't it true, Charlie, that we want to sleep, dream, and die in actually a more feminine state? Oh, in order, yes, in order yes, to do yes. that, we got to put the reins in. We got to slap the reins on the male energy, the sun, poison, prana, bring it back in harmony. So in here, I love this. It's not just heart-brain harmony, brain-lung harmony, but now it's also masculine-feminine harmony. Um, it's all part of this larger kind of rubric of coherence or resonance. And all these practices fundamentally allow you to tune in to the nature of your body, to the nature of mind, to the nature of reality. And that natural tuning in results in, in greater and greater degrees of lucidity. But I want you to unpack something because you, you mentioned a word yeah. without de defining it. Um, and it's a very important word in the inner yogas, which of course is vas breathing. And, and so let's talk just a little bit about that because there's what's called the intermediate vas breath, as you know, the full vas breath. And I know some of this we can't go into in tremendous detail, but just say a little bit, let's define this thing called vas breathing since we've mentioned it a couple of times and people are going, what's that? And yeah, so um, I've, uh, yeah, I might ask you to, just because I've been, um, I've been specifically told not to teach vase breathing. Correct. So uh, I'm going to speak about it, but not <laughs> say how to do it. Um, for whatever reason, my teacher thought it was not a good idea to share publicly. Uh, although, of course, if you're a Dharma practitioner, you probably know about it anyway. But in some forms of vase breathing, it might include an inhalation that expands the belly, which is why it's called the vase, because your belly goes out like a vase or like pot breath, it's sometimes called. So the, the belly kind of expands into this deep abdominal uh, breath. And then we might pull up from uh, the perineum and imagine kind of pushing the energy down at the same time as we're pulling up. So it kind of gathers around the navel center, I believe. And then there are certain visualizations that might go with it. Um, but I found even without the visualization, just a simple pot-shaped breath of this deep inhalation, abdominal breathing, and then sucking up the perineum and imagining kind of pushing down at the same time. So you kind of gather the energy around the area of the uh, navel. Really, I, I feel when I do that, it creates, um, I feel really symmetrical. Like even if I'm not sitting in perfect symmetry, 
I feel symmetrical. And I remember when I first felt that as a strange side effect, I kind of read through the, um, the text and that seemed to make sense because of course, if you create this perfect harmony in both the left and the right channel and the, and the, it, the central channel as well, then it seems natural that you would be in this kind of uh, uh, this symmetrical state. You know, I felt really balanced. Um, and often those practices are linked to uh, the TUMO practices and with the TUMO to the, the dream yoga practices. So, um, yeah, yeah, if you know it and you've got the instruction, you've been authorized to do it, then, yeah, pot shaped breath is really good for lucid dreaming. Perfect. Perfect. That's all we need to say about it. But the other thing that it's connected to, of course, is, is Kumbhaka in the um, Hindu tradition. What's that, uh, Andrew? Kumbhaka. It, it, it's working. It's the same, basically, somewhat approach from, from Hindu inner yoga um, practices and connected oh. in the Japanese tradition to working with Ahara. So I love this because there are so many different, again, cross-cultural explorers cool. who have worked with the, these levels of, of breath work and come to really the same levels of, of insight and conclusion around it. And so before we transition, I, I wanna try to ping into one topic um, yet this morning or, or today with you, but any final comments before we um, exhale, exhaust, so to speak, this marvelous <laughs> little riff on the power of breath. Anything else before we transition? Because I want to talk a little bit more about trauma and how this can help with um, things like PTSD and the like. So, Oh, cool. And, That's actually and, what I, I wanted to mention in a minute. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I had no idea that we were going to spend, uh, this is a Me cool neither. thing about talking with you, Andrew, that we, we never know where this is going to go and you don't you don't send me any questions like people sometimes do on podcasts. We, this is authentically us chatting um, that the breath work is actually only one of the five foundations. So the new book and the mindful to dream and sleep approach has five foundations. So the first one is sleep awareness, which is basically learning how sleep works, learning how we spend a third of our life. And then especially learning. And I don't think any other books done this or not to my knowledge, looking at exactly how stress and trauma affect each stage of sleep. So how does stress and trauma affect the hypnagogic compared to deep sleep? How does it affect the dream state compared to the hypnopompic state? Really looking at that in detail so that the first foundation is learning how you spend that third of your life. You know, knowledge is power, empowering yourself with the knowledge of how you sleep and crucially knowing that however you sleep, it's okay. If you like to sleep for four hours, then stay awake for two hours and fall back asleep again. That's great. That's working for you. Go for it. If you like to have naps in the day, that's great. All the research now points that naps, the benefits far outweigh any negatives. And as long as you nap within six hours of your proposed sleep time, your sleep pressure, which is like the biological, uh, right. uh, it's basically tiredness. Sleep pressure is what creates tiredness. As long as you nap within six hours of sleep, your uh, sleep pressure will have built up so it won't negatively affect your sleep, which again, a lot of people have been told these old insomnia sleep hack people are still saying, oh, napping is bad for you. No, it's not. Napping is very, very good for you. And as long as you nap within six hours of your proposed bedtime, there's no negative effects that you'll find. And as long as you keep the nap below uh, 90 minutes. So mm -hmm. first foundation is learning all about sleep. Second foundation is rest and relaxation. Mm -hmm. This is about that bridge, right? We got the wakeful state, we got the sleep state, and sometimes we try and just jump from one to the other. We're like fully awake, doing emails, watching TV, and we're like, oh, bedtime. Like, dude, we need to like create that bridge of rest because if we don't, we'll just be staring at the ceiling for the first 20 minutes. So we can't. <laughs> so learning how to create that bridge of rest through yoga nidra, hypnagogic mindfulness practices, and deep relaxation. That's the second foundation. 
third foundation is breath, which we've spent the whole hour on, which is brilliant. I've never done a whole interview just looking at breath. So I'd love this. And the fourth foundation is transformation of nightmares. Mm. So not only what nightmares symbolize, what they mean, what they're trying to do, but also a depathologization of nightmares. Nightmares in many cases are a sign that the mind is healing itself. A nightmare is a outer manifestation of an internal healing process, just like a scab, you know, just like a scab forms to, to um, cover over a wound. So the healing process can happen at a lower level. It may be unsightly. We may be ashamed of our scabs. We may want to pick them or hide them from others. Exactly the same way as a nightmare is working. So fourth foundation is looking at nightmares and then a lot of practices, including the circle of protectors practice from the Bund tradition, which can be a great way to fall asleep with a safe sense of safety. And then the fifth foundation is lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, why do I put it last? Because for many people, when working with traumatized populations, they just need to sleep, first of all. And then once you stabilize their sleep, then you can say, okay, now you're sleep stabilized. Okay, there's this other practice, which is really powerful for working with stress and trauma and has this, all these ancient, you know, traditional aspects to it. And then you can introduce the lucid dreaming. Um, and just a segue into this thing about trauma, uh, we did a brilliant study with IONS, Institute of Noetic yeah, Sciences. Totally with Garrett. In, um, yeah, when was this? Yeah. Yes, brilliant. Yes, with Garrett. We did this, um, I don't know, a few months ago, maybe three months ago. Yeah. And the initial setup, Garrett wanted um, 60, 50 to 60 veterans. And he asked, in one week, could we teach them lucid dreaming, get them to have a lucid dream, and hopefully in the lucid dream, heal their PTSD? And I was like, dude, I have no idea. One week to get people from zero lucid dreaming experience to, to lucidity. Who knows? Maybe we'll get a couple of lucid dreams. Anyway, in the end, we opened it up and it wasn't just veterans. It was any people with uh, high level, high PTSD scores. So to be part of the study, you had to be, you had to have clinical PTSD and had to be in treatment for it. So we ended up having 50 to 60 people, some of them veterans, some of them civilians. Uh, and I've never worked with a group where everyone has PTSD. Mm. Um, so I went in there thinking, wow, I have no idea how this is going to work, but I'm going to try my best. Um, we ended up having 74% of those 60 people had a lucid dream. Oh. And of those, a very high percentage had a healing lucid dream. Um, so it was a, a phenomenally successful study. We haven't crunched the data yet. And the kind of USP of that study was not only to hopefully prove how lucid dreaming can be such a great treatment for PTSD, because to be honest, we already know that. We've got five or six neurobiological studies now proving how effective lucid dreaming is at treating trauma. So that's not new news. What we were trying to do was prove that lucid, hopefully prove that lucid dreaming has such a powerful healing effect on the body, uh, such a powerful healing effect. It not only affects the mind, it actually affects the body. So what we were doing was taking spit saliva samples to um, log the amount of anti-inflammatory biomarkers in the bloodstream. Our theory, our, our hypothesis being that after a healing lucid dream where you have faced the PTSD or transformed whatever was causing the traumatic experience within you, if we then did another saliva sample, we would find a lower level of inflammation in the bloodstream through the saliva markers. Mm-hmm. Now, if we can prove that, that after a healing lucid dream, the biomarkers in your bloodstream show a decrease in inflammation, we, I mean, this is crazy if we, who knows, but we, we may have proved that um, that lucid dreaming heals at a physical level, which opens up a very wide vista of possibility. Not only that, we might also help to 
push the science forward on the mind-body connection because in the waking state, there's always the argument of it was just the placebo or it could have been variables. There were, there's so many variables, but in the lucid dream state, that's a closed circuit. Yeah. There are very few variables there. They, they were freaking asleep. So if we show that they had X amount of uh, inflammation, then they went to sleep, had a lucid dream. And then the next sample we took, they had a much lower level of inflammation. We've got pretty much a, a, a direct correlation here between the lucid dream and the reduction in inflammation. So I'm so excited about crunching that, that, that data. And more excited than that, I was just, it was brilliant that in, in one week, we could have a 50 or 60 people with full on PTSD and 74% of them learned to lucid dream and had a healing and, and uh, uh, had a lucid dream. And many of them had a healing lucid dream. So I'm very excited about that study. You know, I, I, Charlie, that's just unbelievably beautiful to hear. And, and it's always been my, my contention that when more data like this, more studies are done, that we will find that the, the healing effects of this practice, um, not just heals the, the mind using principles like uh, neuroplasticity and the like, but really this downward causation that it actually percolates down can affect things within the soma. And, and of course it, it makes total sense, uh, both from an inner yogi point of view and a deeper understanding of the nature of the unconscious mind, which, you know, Candace Burton and others says, you know, that is your body, your body is your unconscious mind. And so when yeah. you're working, when you're working with this beautiful hybrid state of consciousness, lucid dreaming, where the conscious mind can meet the unconscious mind directly, well, guess what it's meeting? It's meeting the interiority of the body, um, gross yes. and subtle. And so to me, this, this not only does, and this is why both you and I are just um, so excited and passionate about this topic, because not only can it represent possibly the pedagogy of the future, that, you know, the, as Matthew Walker suggests, it can represent possibly an entirely new modality for healing. Because as you know, in the inner um, Eastern approaches to health, it, they target the subtle body for purposes of health, right? Acupuncture, yeah. moxibustion yeah. and the like. And so we can target the exact same body for purposes of spiritual transformation and psycho-spiritual healing. And so the more these studies come out, uh, I think we're on the tip of this iceberg of, of really exploring just the extraordinary potentials when we start to dive deep into this, this lucid dreaming thing. But, you know, again, so much to say here. What I wanna do is turn it over to you and in the time we have left, both in your book or even irrespective of your book, um, what do you feel is, is the most important to share with people, with our listeners? Um, because, you know, there's, there's so much we can talk about here. Trauma is such a rich topic. It gets so much press these days, rightly so. You know, Your Body Keeps the Score is a best-selling book, yeah. appropriately so. There's so much out there. So whatever comes to mind from your end that you feel that you've discovered over the last couple of years that has really got you jazzed, or you feel is, is worth sharing. Um, I mean, I can ping lots of questions your way, but I'm curious from your own side, what would you like people to know that you, when, when you learned about it, you're going, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. I wanna share this. So I'm gonna let you run with whatever speaks to you. Yeah, br brilliant question. So, you know, three years ago, I was aware of trauma and some trauma-based body practices I'd come across and stuff, but I didn't really know a lot about it. But then I spent the last three years, you know, yeah, training and doing these 
PTSD masterclass at the British Psychological Association and going to interview trauma specialists and working with trauma specialists, inviting them on the courses to help break down how lucid dreaming is working with trauma and all this kind of stuff. And what I've realized is the vast majority of people are traumatized. And in fact, we need to depathologize the term in the same way as, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, suddenly all these celebrities and people coming out talking about mental health. And now it is totally normal to hear um, sports stars, athletes, uh, musicians, rappers talking about mental health issues, right? And that's so brilliant. We've normalized it in that way. Uh, and it's, it's just such, such a, a powerful approach and done so much good. I believe the next big thing we need to depathologize is this term trauma. Yeah. because when I started out the writing process of the book three years ago, oh, I haven't said the name of the book. It's called Wake Up to Sleep. Sorry, it's not very good. Promotion. Oh, yeah, I can't have throw out your throat got it. Sure. <laughs> it's called Wake Up to Sleep. Um, when I first started the book, I was pretty sure that um, all the veterans I've been working with for the last six years, they had serious trauma because they had seen and done traumatic things and they'd been in war zones and all this kind of stuff. And that the general population, the civilian population, uh, would never be as traumatized as veterans. I now realize that was a completely naive way to go into the uh, way of thinking. And now I realize that trauma is trauma, whether from a war zone, literal war zone, or a familial war zone. Trauma is trauma. And how can we define trauma? Uh, or how can we define, define traumatization? Any experience that overwhelms our ability to cope Yep. And to integrate the effects of that experience leads to trauma. Yep. So whether that is in a war zone or whether that's some social media bullying or, or uh, being parented in a way where you didn't feel loved or being bullied at school or not being able to, to fully express your sexuality, you know, I realized that, that trauma can affect everybody. It does affect everybody. And that we have generations um, who are working with trauma and probably don't know about it. And I think the next big pinnacle in mental health exploration will be the depathologization of the term trauma and a movement towards accepting that a vast majority of us are holding trauma and that talk therapy does not work very well for trauma. I yep. say this with complete and utter respect for the talking therapies. They've helped me massively in the last two years when my personal life fell apart. Um, it's brilliant. But for trauma, because trauma affects the part of the brain that is unaffected by speech and cognition, yep. it is not affected. You know, the prefrontal cortex shuts down in traumatic experience. The only way to work with trauma fully and completely to release it is through the body and the breath, yep. the body and the breath being, you know, synonymous here. So movement, body work, somatic experiencing, somatic release, um, shaking therapy, dance, movement, bilateral stimulation, all of the stuff that brilliant book you mentioned, Body Keep the Score, touches upon, uh, that is now becoming a really mainstream approach uh, to working with trauma. And I think that's going to be the really the next big um, frontier is the normalization of the term trauma um, and exploring it in a much more open-minded way with, with breath and body practices. And whether we like it or not, trauma is coming. Because as a world population, we have just experienced 18 months of trauma. And you might think, oh, it's already set in. Look at the uh, look how much more insomnia we have now. Look how anxiety 
conditions have increased over the last 18 months? Absolutely. But the average time for trauma to set in can be five to seven years uh, for very extreme trauma. So for the trauma we've just experienced, it hasn't even started to affect us as a global population. In fact, it will probably affect us most when the world opens up again and normality resumes. We have a decrease in these stress levels. And then I think we're going to see a real effect on people's sleep and anxiety levels. I think we might have a global pandemic. Um, much like the one we've just seen, but this will be a mental health pandemic based on the, the uh, uh, trauma of the lockdown, the trauma of seeing so many people die from COVID, uh, the trauma of the uh, lack of freedoms uh, that have been affected by the uh, the lockdowns and such. So I think we need to be ready for it. It's coming. It's totally okay. We have ways to deal with it, but we need to be ready for that, I think. Um, and I think we need to be open about it and know that it's okay. And that we can work through our bodies, our breath, through our minds to, to really heal as a, as a global population. Oh, Charlie, I can't. Oh, this is just beautiful. It's so, such important work. So helpful. I, I couldn't agree more with you with it, you know, depathologizing this notion. Again, it's, it's a little bit like the insomnia thing. The promise and peril of labels and, and articulation that we all suffer from trauma. And I want to take this, if, if with your permission, my friend, because we can't speak the same vocabulary to the deeper end of the pool because I 100% agree with you that um, we are all afflicted to greater or lesser degrees with levels of trauma. And, and really to me, this is the basis. This is again, so we're gonna now talk a little bit about Bardo's stuff and let's just wander into terrain that we are both um, so much in love with the Tibetan Buddhist approach to this sort of thing. And, and the notion, what comes to mind immediately are the samskaras, these, yeah. um, these undigested psychic cysts. These are, these are uh, the karmic generators that are basically born from our inability to ingest, digest, metabolize, and then you could say excrete, but that's not the right word. The, the really the right word is, is allowing these really difficult energies to do their difficult um, journey through our body and then allow them to flow through. And because they're so unwanted, we often, especially when we're young, we don't even have the neurological wherewithal, but even, even as we, <laughs> yeah. if we are, we're older, if we are unable to be with unwanted experiences, either intentionally or we just don't really have a choice, um, this undigested, unmetabolized experience, out of sight is not out of mind, out of sight is into the unconscious mind, i.e. your body. And there it lodges as these un metabolized psychic cysts, samskaras, which then serve, it's like, you know, neurologically, right? 95%, Charlie, 95% minimum of what we do is dictated by these unconscious processes. Yeah. And these are, we, we don't, you know, forgive them father for they know not what they do. So we th- therefore end up living our lives symptomatically as expressions yes. of these unaccessed, undigested, un, unincised, and, and therefore, Un, unreleased energies. And so I mentioned this because it could, with the right view behind this, people will often, I'm sure you've had this in your personal experience and in your work is that the importance of doing this work uh, is there's so many factors, but one is that this undigested, unmetabolized energy, in fact, gets constipated and trapped in your body. And there it expresses itself symptomatically. And so by having the right view around this stuff, you realize everybody's suffering from greater or lesser degrees. And then when you do this work, what happens? Oh my gosh, you access, you incise, you drain, whatever metaphor you want to use. And the energy is liberated. The energy is freed. And so you feel lighter, literally more energetic, 
yes. more involved. And, and this is also why, exactly why body work is the way to work with this because that's where the stuff is held, right? So you have to get down into that substrate in order to even recognize access and, and work with all this stuff. So I'm gonna pause and, and see if you have a comment on that. And then I wanna go even just a little bit deeper um, before I transition into one last thing. But any questions or insights or comments on that? Uh, just just the, your breakdown there, the samskaras in relation to psychological trauma is like, I'm gonna listen to that back. Um, I have nothing to add to that. That was, I've, I've just never thought of that. Not, I've never thought of that in that way, but I've never heard it put in that way of this direct correlation between, yeah, the samskaras and, and trauma in the body and how it's being held. Um, to, to me, yeah, just, I mean, I, I, I absolutely, I, I want to say I absolutely agree, but I, I'd never heard it before. So I'm still processing it. But yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's so brilliant when you put it that way. And it makes so much sense, right? I mean, I remember doing this Tibetan yoga form. I still do it actually, Kumye, um, which oh, yeah. is often presented as a form of kind of massage, but I learned a, a form of a bun uh, from the bun tradition, Kumye, which is usually practiced naked in the snow before battle. It's a real form of kind of power yoga. And in that, they have this uh, idea that memory is stored in the muscle. That's right. And when you first start, start to practice Kumye, you often have spontaneous crying and trauma release because you're stretching the muscle at such a deep uh, way that kind of the, this trauma is released. And I'm thinking, these guys knew exactly about the link between trauma being held in the body way before Bessel van der Kolk was writing his brilliant work yeah. on how trauma is stored in different parts of the brain. So it seems more and more that again, like everything we've talked about today, there seems to be um, not a divergence, but a coming together of the kind of neuroscientific view of trauma and how it's processed through the body and everything you just said about how these deluded mind states and the samskaras find themselves in the body and manifest through illness and, and expressions of, of a body, bodily dis-ease. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. Well, let's let's take one final step here, Charlie, because yeah. again, I love. Isn't it true that what we talk about is is mental illness or trauma? It's all a matter of degree. I mean, on one level, we're all mentally ill. On one yeah, level, we, we're all suffering from trauma. It's just a matter of degree. Absolutely. And what you attend to, and so if we understand that, then we we can normalize so-called mental illness. I mean, give me a break. What is normal, right? I mean, for me, normal is mostly just repression, right? It's like, yep. you know, we're, we're all, we all have a little devil and, and a little deity in us. We exist as you know, along vast um, vectors of spectrums of identity. And, and so if we understand that, then we can exercise so much more loving kindness, my treat towards ourselves, that we're complex beings loaded with all these bandwidths of identity and levels of, of, of trauma to greater or lesser degrees, levels of neurosis and psych even psychosis to greater or lesser degrees. And I think understanding that is so important because then we're not going to classify, judge, um, and evaluate those who are, are deemed clinically ill. We're all clinically ill. It's just a matter of degree. And so with that in mind, Charlie, the last thing I want to talk about, I'd love to hear what you think about this, is to me, as you know, I, I riff a lot about the Bardo teachings, Bardo yoga, 
actually include Bharata Yoga as, as part of my mapping of the five nocturnal meditations. In, in, in my mapping, it's the ultimate one in a certain way, literally the dream yeah. of time, right? Yeah. And so to me, Charlie, when I reflected on this, I reflected that we all suffer from a very unique form of PTSD, which I call post-truth stress. Huh. <laughs> and, and what this is, and this is, this is a real drop into the deep end of the pool, is also deep within us is this unrecognized truth of our mm -hmm. inherent non-existence. So now we're going to go, as we close, we're going to go to the very end of the deep end of the pool, where um, at the moment of death, what takes place, and again, I'm going to link this into vocabulary that you can relate to, the 12th Madonna, death. What, what happens at the moment of death? And what is it that actually then conditions the first link? We often talk about the first link, the first link being ignorance is like a standalone. Well, it's not a standalone. These links are, are conditioned and condition the preceding and succeeding links. And so I've often thought, Charlie, okay, well, ignorance doesn't stand alone, right? Mm -hmm. What is it that conditions ignorance? Well, it's death. And what mm -hmm. death is, you know, this death, in, in our tradition, in our languaging, it, it's the Dharmakaya. It's the truth of mm. emptiness. It's the truth mm. of our inherent egolessness and non-existence. And so therefore what happens in terms of trauma is <clears throat> this is in fact, this noblest of all truths, this brightest of all lights, this post-traumatic or truth stress disorder is in fact, what generates the entire samsaric trajectory when we're unable to resolve and hang out with this underlying, this is the deepest of all samskaras, yeah. this, this lack of recognition that inherently um, uh, we are empty in nature. And so if we understand this level of PTSD, I, I mentioned this because you talk about, and, and I'm putting the um, exclamation point on it, how we're all suffering from levels of trauma. Oh my gosh, this goes so far down to me <clears throat> that we are all victims until we wake up of this post-truth stress disorder, which is revealed when we die, doesn't go away. It's lodged in the very center of our being as the very centerless center of our being, which we then spend our entire lives avoiding, right? Yeah. And so if we understand this, then we understand, oh my gosh, talk about PTSD. If you are <laughs> in the realm of samsara, you are here because of PTSD, yes. your inability to relate to the truth, the noble truth of your inherent empty nature. And so I, this may seem somewhat esoteric because we've had such a practical conversation for an hour and a half. I'm just throwing this out here to, to show listeners just how far these principles go. So the trauma principle goes all the way to the very genesis of the samsaric trajectory. And so I just had to throw that out there just again, to kind of depathologize this thing called trauma. Because if we are in samsara, we are all suffering from this foundational form of PTSD. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, that, that, that original trauma, the original separation trauma, Isn't the it? separation of, our, of ourselves, the illusory separation of ourselves from our Buddha nature, that is the original trauma, right? That's it. And it's through the integration of that trauma, that's what the spiritual path is. Wow. Yeah, so I, I just, I love it because really what, to whatever extent we can bring these wisdom teachings, conjoin them with the great gifts of, of the West. And, and when I read your book, Charlie, I was just to reinstate what I said at the outset, I was thrilled 
to see how you were bringing your wonderful insights into this extraordinarily practical arena of working with veterans, working with trauma, working with breath, working with body. To me, it just put a massive smile on my face um, because then it shows again, the applicability of what we're doing, that, that we have the capacity to join the insights from these wisdom traditions with the skillful means and, and cross-pollinate between um, East, so-called East and West, which of course with globalization is breaking down and it's one of the great gifts of globalization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I can't applaud you um, too much for the work that you've done in this book. It's a marvelous book. It's gonna make a great contribution to uh, listeners and especially to those who are looking for expanding their horizons to their understanding of things like lucid dreaming and dream yoga. This really adds a, a complete new dimension to what you've been doing. So oh, um, thank you, man. Huge, that, huge, that means a lot to me. Huge kudos. And so as we, as we start to close this up, I could talk to you all day. You are absolutely one of my favorite people to run with these topics, but I know you're busy. Any other um, like final comments, like uh, what's your passion these days? What are you working on? Any new writing projects, any new research things coming up or what's, what's the latest on your docket? Yeah, I'm in this interesting stage where the book is has been sent to print, but it, it hasn't come out yet. So I'm sure you know as an author that this strange kind of moment where like it's the calm before the storm and you're putting stuff in order and you're looking at kind of aspirations for what happens next. And my aspiration is, and I really feel confident that this is going to be manifest in this book, that I think this, this new project, the, the book and the Mindfulness of Dream and Sleep course that it's based on, these five foundations I mentioned, I really think it's the most beneficial thing I've done. Um, I love lucid dreaming. I'm passionate about it. It's been my kind of, you know, thing since I was a kid. Of course, that will always be my core. But not everybody is into lucid dreaming. Yep. Not everybody has the, the time or the energy to, to go into it. So although I hope the lucid dreaming offering has, been, has benefited many people, I actually think that this is going to be the most beneficial thing I've done. And that's what I'm in this for, right? It's like, how many people can we help before we die? Like, yeah. that's basically it. Yeah. Like, how many beings can we help before we die? If that's if we're really into this Bodhisattva thing. And I think this is the most helpful thing that I've done um, and working with the veterans and just anyone who's been, who's been working with trauma has been so eye-opening and grounding and humbling and just good for me. Yeah. Like I've, I've gained so much. It's wholesome. I mean, it literally makes me sleep well at night, you know, no pun intended. It's like teaching people to lucid dream is brilliant. And, and very often they have these amazing spiritual experiences and you're like, Whoa, I connected them to a dream yoga lineage. This is so cool. Like, I'm so happy to be doing this. And, and all, not, but, and also this stuff, helping people sleep, you know, giving someone a practice the next week, they come to the course, they say, I don't have nightmares anymore. And then six months later, they email you, I still don't have nightmares anymore. You're like, that feels good. Yeah. Like those people were suffering because nightmares bring us suffering. However much the science says they're good for us and stuff like that, the subjective experience is one of suffering, right? And you're like, wow, this made this person suffer less. That feels really good. And I want to keep on doing that because, you go, because I mean, without saying nihilistic, like, what's the point of doing anything else? Like really this stuff is meaningless. I'm yeah. sorry, it's meaningless unless we are helping others and trying to wake up at the same time as doing it, I think. 
So I really hope that this practice, the practice in the book and this whole new project that I've been working on for the last few years helps to do that, helps to relieve suffering while helping others wake up and maybe even myself waking up at the same time. So yeah, that's my motivation. That's the next step. That's the yeah. next project. That's the, that's the project. In fact, there's no other project. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying I'm so, so just delighted to hear all this because for me as well, Charlie, it's like, you know, we, we do all this kind of so-called spiritual work, seemingly esoteric practices and, and there's a, a very powerful near enemy to all this. It can be a very subtle form of escapism, spiritual yeah. bypassing, blah, blah, blah. And so to me, it, it's more and more my little thing is if what we're doing <clears throat> with even Buddhism altogether, meditation, spirituality, if it's not able to help the world right now, which is yes. in so much need for help, of what relevance is it? What are we doing here? Are we just trying to be um, spiritually more comfortable, expand our comfort plan into the arena of the cocoon? And this parenthetically is worth throwing into the mix. You probably saw this article. If not, I'll send it to you. In Scientific American, uh, the head quote, the header quote was from Chogun Trungpa Oh, wow. About, about how spiritual practice is really mostly leading to subtle spiritual narcissists. Mm. That, that people are just using their spiritual practice what Trump Rinpoche predicted 60 years ago with cutting through spiritual materialism as a way to just inflate their egos and just feel better. And so, again, there's nothing provisionally wrong with feeling better. But, you know, as I often say, the, the path is not about feeling good unless you're talking about basic goodness. The path is about getting real. Yes. Getting, getting real means dealing with trauma, pain shadow work, nightmares, suffering. And so that's why I am just so thrilled with this new direction, this kind of applied spirituality that you're, if I could use that term, that you're engaging in now using these extraordinary skill sets to really get into the trenches, to get into the streets and to help people where they really need the help. And, And I say this more and more now because, you know, the world I mean, goodness, open your eyes. We are in a heap of trouble. Yeah. If we don't really wake up to this, we will become um, one of the 95% of species that will go extinct. I mean, we are in Mm -hmm. the sixth great extinction and it is caused by us. And so I used to be a little bit more, I'm not sure if judicious is the right term, but cautious about inserting political statements and and making these kind of stronger, um, uh, yeah, just basically... Uh-huh. world-related comments, but then I realized it's, it's, we're being disingenuous that if we don't take this stuff and really bolt it, again, take heaven and bolt it to the earth, yeah. what are we doing here? You know, I mean, yeah, my lucid dreams are great. Dream yoga is great, but how is that really going to help the world? Oh, dude, I'm so glad you're saying this. So yeah, I, I agree. Love, love, love what you're doing. And, and finally, my dear friend, once again, how can people learn more about you? Um, when will your book will your book come out? How can we support you in your ongoing work? I always love to introduce more and more people to that venue of support for you. Oh, thanks, man. So uh, the new book comes out October the 26th on worldwide release. So it'll be available anywhere that sells books, whether that's online or on bookshops and stuff like that. It's called Wake Up to Sleep, Five 
uh, what's the film? Wake up to sleep, five powerful practices to transform stress and trauma for peaceful sleep and mindful dreams, which is a bit of a mouthful. So I just will wake up to sleep, basically. Um, <laughs> you can find me on uh, Instagram and Facebook and my website, charliemorley.com. Uh, again, someone tested this recently. If you just type into Google, Charlie Lucid, all my stuff comes up. So if you forget my last name, just put in Charlie Lucid. And um, yeah, um, you know, embrace your sleep, embrace your dreams. Um, I loved what you just said there about, you know, making this real. You reminded me um, of a teaching I saw from Ken Wilber, and he talks mm. about his axis, waking up and growing up. That's right. And I know that I found for myself, you know, when I was living in the Buddhist center and I was doing a lot of, a lot of practice, I was doing a little bit of practice and I was really focused on this waking up axis, but my growing up axis was really low. And these last two years, man, I mean, I've had my mom get a terminal illness and is kind of on her way to the bardo. I've had the breakdown of my marriage. I've had like heartbreak. I've had all this stuff happening. Mm. But I've really spent the last couple of years focusing or being forced to focus more on the growing up to the waking up axis. Mm. And it reminds me of something Chogyam Trimpa Rinpoche said, I, I believe, I, sorry if I'm quoting your, your, your uh, teacher wrongly, um, but someone was asking about mantras and he said, oh, the best mantra you could do would be grow up. Oh no, om grow up, om grow up, om grow up, om grow up. And I was like, that's it, man, om grow up. So I feel like this new piece of work is reflective of a more kind of a grown up approach that I've been taking. And I still love lucid dreaming and it's still very powerful, Yeah. but also dealing with our shit is powerful Yeah. and yeah. growing up is powerful and being okay with who we are is powerful and helping others do the same. So um, yeah, that's how I feel. That's awesome, Charlie. Love you. You're one of my all time favorite people in the world of lucid dreaming and otherwise always such a delight to spend time with you. We absolutely have to do this again. I learned so much every time. Oh, take, thank you so take, much. Take good care of yourself and till next time, my dear friend. Okay. Thanks, dude. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been lovely. Totally. Thank you, my friend. <laughs>